Okay, I wanted to start off with, remember last week we talked a little bit about that, uh, I, I encourage you to, to think about um, engaging in a ministry of encouragement. Remember that? We talked about that, and I put that little website up there, viacharacter.org. You can take the little quiz, and then you can see what your um, character strengths are in terms of the strength of them. Not strength and weakness, but just the strength of them. So did anybody give that a shot? Oh, several of you did. Okay. Anybody want to share their top one? You don't, I won't embarrass you and ask you what your bottom one is. Of course, I'm dying to know. But um, what, what was it? Yeah. Honesty. Honesty. Okay. Very good. All right. What else? Yeah, Mary Jo. Hello. Appreciation of beauty and excellence. Appreciation of beauty and excellence. Yes, I would say that. I would say that about both of you. Yeah, I would say that because I know you pretty well. Yeah, what else? Anybody else? Anybody else? That I picked up world and then studied, but I didn't uh, increase. So. You, did, you don't remember what they were? Or you do? No. Oh. I remember, but I didn't increase. Oh, you didn't? But the beauty appreciation That would be yours. Okay. It's okay to, uh, to say what yours is if it's somebody else's. It's okay to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else try it? Yeah. Marla. Uh, guess what mine is. Let's see. There's so many strengths that you have. How can I, how can I narrow them all down to one thing? How about um, speaking your mind? Is that one of them? Well, that could be. No, it was humor. Humor. Hmm. Well, I have to check that out with others. <laughs> no, you easily laugh. That's one of the things about that you usually like. So anyway, this is just kind of a fun thing to do because, because what the, and my point in bringing it up is that it gives you a vocabulary that you can use when you not only think about yourself with others, but thinking about other people. And when you engage with other people in a way that would be an encouragement. So encouragement, again, is, is looking for the inner quality of a person. It's not restricting your comments to just simply looking at the outcome of some action on their part. That we're pretty good at. We see somebody do something good and fantastic and magnificent, and we say, oh, that was great, that was awesome, you are the best. We're, we're, you know, unless you're like totally blind uh, or just you don't want to, um, it's easy not to do that. But most of us are kind of geared to see that, and we'll say something about it. But what encouragement does is it looks beyond the action. It looks beyond the outcome. It actually looks at the deeper part of a person in terms of not just their personality, but their, their sense of who they are and, and their sense of, of how God has made them or wired them, if you want to use that terminology. And so what it does is it gives you a way to identify that. And so if you can, can start to train yourself in recognizing the inner qualities of other people, and then you, you, as you notice it, you speak it. You say, I notice how gentle you were with your brother when you didn't trip him. See, that is encouragement, right? That's encouragement. It, because then you're, you're identifying a quality in somebody. And I just believe that the more that we train ourselves in the habit of that, the better we get at doing it. And we become more merciful with other people because we're looking below the surface. We're looking at the inner part. And the more merciful you are with other people, ironically, the more merciful you become with yourself. Because we are very outcome, action-oriented people in the sense that if I don't live up to whatever the standard is, if I don't meet the expectations, right? then what am I going to say about myself in that moment? Well, I'm probably going to whip myself up. I'm going to beat myself up, criticize myself, all that kind of thing. Okay, so here's kind of a, a ni nice way to uh, think about this. Three, two, one, okay? Um, how many of you would say that one of the strengths that you have is that you can pretty easily identify the flaws in other people? <laughs> right? You know, you have a special insight, right? You have a, a certain wisdom, probably from God, who knows, maybe from the devil, we don't know. But, but, but it, you, you just seem to be able to see and identify the fractures in other people's thinking or kind of what they do and how it doesn't turn out. How, how many of you would, well, I'm, I know already who you are, so you don't have to tell me. All right, All right so, 
So the, the question would be in terms of three, two, one. When you see those flaws in other people, okay, how often ought you to bring that wisdom to the other person's uh, awareness? Oh, sure, Doris, if you're friends with them or not. Yeah, okay, well, maybe that would make a difference. If you do it according to the ratio here, you might actually have more friends, okay? So if we think about it that way, the idea would be is that the criticisms that you have of other people should happen one time, okay? Thank you, boys. There's always somebody that says, let's define this. Okay, yeah, one that you avoid. This is out loud. Okay, all right. So the best ratio, because the best ratio in terms of how do I help people hear me? See, if I go over the top with criticisms, after a while, what will happen to people hearing me? They want to tune me out. Okay, so they're not going to hear me. All right, so the idea is, is that are there, are there some criticisms that, you, that that other person really does need to hear. Is there? Yes, there is. Okay. So we would say, yeah. I mean, because there are moments when um, I need to hear that I am not perfect. I know, you're surprised. I know. But I need to hear that. So what's going to be the best way for me to hear it is if it's only coming at me one time. Now, if it's going to come at me one time, then what softens that blow is a little bit is that I can hear two praises. Two praises. That's going to make it easier for me to hear the criticism because I'm not going to feel like, well, the only thing I got going for me is my flaws. Okay? So that's it. And so the idea then of three is encouragements. So if, if you want to think about your habits in terms of how you relate to and minister to other people, this is really a good thing to shoot for. That what I'm going after here, and I have to think about this, okay, how, what am I saying to other people about them? If I want them to hear the critique or the criticism, then part of what I need to do is be able to identify two ways I can praise them and three ways I can encourage them. For most of us, it's the other way around, okay? We're, we're very in tune with what they're doing wrong, what we're doing wrong, how we're not living up to whatever the standard is, okay? And if that's is costing me something, I do need to hear it. It's just I don't need to hear it three times, okay? So what do you think about this idea? See, this all came out of our study last week, and, uh, and I was the only one that got excited about it. So anyways, I thought, well, I'm going to finish this. Yeah, go ahead. So do you start with a praise then before you give them the criticism? Or? You can. I teach that. But, but I leave it open as an option because there's a lot of people that are suspicious of it. There's a lot of people that do not want to hear a praise and then the, the critique, partly because in the business world, very often managers are taught to, to praise somebody just before you fire them. Right? Yeah, oh, you've been really good to us. We've been so happy. Here's your severance thing. I mean, and so when you hear that over and over again, you get used to that formula and you think the next person that does it in your personal relationships must have some, uh-oh, wait for the other shoe to fall. Okay. So I always leave that as an, as an option. I just ask people. And we've done that before in here. How many of you would say that before you receive a criticism or a critique of some kind, or feedback they call it, uh, you want to hear something nice about you. How many of you would say that's true about you? Me. Yeah, I'm, that's how I am. I want, to, I want to hear something nice about me before you like level the you know, boom on me. But there's other people that just, they say, no, no, get right to it. How many of you are the get right to it people? Wow, there's a lot more of you here. Why are you in this class anyway? You know. So it's just, it's a different, it's how different, how different people roll. Okay, that's how that works. But the idea of it is, is think about, for example, your engagement, your verbal engagement with somebody in a given week. Do it that way, okay? And think about it, what are they hearing mostly from you? Are they hearing mostly from you criticisms or critiques of something, but hardly ever any praises, because you can't think of any, and then 
the encouragement's not at all because you're not thinking about it. You're not thinking about encouragements, okay? I just want you to think differently about it and think in terms of, okay, at the end of the week with that person, my spouse, my kid, my, my pastor, my church member, whoever it is, Triton, whatever it is, okay? Is that what is the ratio and how, how, are, you, um, how are you connecting with that person in a way that is going to make it easier for that person to hear you, okay? So it's just a nice little challenge. But we talked about that last week because, remember, um, uh, Jacob, before he died, he pulls all his kids together, and he gives them this sort of blessing, but in the blessing are some critiques of their life. And, you know, clearly they earned some of that, you know. But then he also was encouraging in many ways. So that's, that's where we went with, with this, okay? Yeah, Carl. One of the processes that uh, I know I, I and a lot of my colleagues used when we were, well, even back when I was flying in the Air Force mm-hmm. and then during my work was a process called Even Better If. Even Better If? Yes. Wow. So it was at the end of a particular event or, or work effort or a flight, Yeah. we'd sit down and say, okay, what went wrong Even Better If? Okay, so it was a critique, not a yes, criticism. That's right. There's a difference. There is a difference, yeah. And so the critique was this 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 occurred. Yeah. Uh here's what you know you could have done. Yeah. And what we're gonna do from here on out to make it even better. That's really great. I like that. Even better if. I'm gonna steal that. Even better if. That's good. Yeah, I figured there was a government acronym that went with that. <laughs> there we go. The Even Better If Department. That's good. I like that. All right, very good. Any, any other thoughts about that before we move on? Yes, into our actual lesson. Yeah? Kairos. Kairos. Because I know that uh, the timing of a criticism can be horribly yeah. wrong. Uh-huh. Or horribly helpful, you know. And I, I mean, I am indebted to my daughter. She just blurted out this criticism one time, and yeah. it kind of it caught you. It caught me, and then from there, other events occurred that actually influenced me. Sure. So, um, I think the timing sometimes timing can is is a, can be a huge factor as to whether right. it's. Or helpful. So when is the best timing to give me feedback on a sermon that I preach here, would you say? Well, if it's good, you can say it right away. But, but like if it was a critique, if there was some, you know, something I missed or something like that. Are you surprised that people give critiques of sermons? Does that surprise you? Yeah. Okay, so when would be the best time to do that? That I would be able to hear you the next day, the next day, yeah. So there is a sense of timing there that you're kind of coming off of the, the buzz of the moment and whether the buzz is good or bad, it's just the buzz. Uh, but there's a lot of people whose timing, whose clock is slightly off and they think that the next day is like five minutes ago. So, all right, well, let's get into our actual lesson for today. And See, this is how... It's taken 65 weeks to work through 50 chapters, right? Because we just kind of roll. We kind of go wherever the Spirit leads, or at least I lead. So, all right, so we're going to start with uh, verse uh, uh, with 50, chapter 50. So what's just happened? Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. So what's just happened? He died. Okay. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. That's just another name for Jacob. So the physicians involved him taking the full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, if I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now go up, now let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. So why is Joseph uh, sending word to Pharaoh that he wants to do this? 
Yeah, but he knows the chain of command, doesn't he? I mean, he, he's in charge of much, but he still knows he's not Pharaoh, right? So he's asking for this uh, leave of absence, so to speak, in terms of honoring his father and the oath that he swore to his father. And so the Egyptians, they would have known how to do embalming. I mean, you think about some of the mummies that they find today with, uh, in archaeology. They're still, I mean, they're still intact. I mean, even if the body isn't. But, but that, whole, uh, that whole process was something that the, uh, the Egyptians uh, were quite good at. Um, for being such a pagan uh, culture, uh, that's why oftentimes they would find all of these uh, possessions in the tombs as well, because in that way that person who comes back to life in the, in the afterlife would have some things uh, that he could use uh, in, in terms of that. Okay, So Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. That's a nice understatement there. You ever wonder why didn't Pharaoh go? And I don't know the answer to that. That thought, uh, that question just occurred to me that, that you know, uh, it's, it's like his whole court goes and much of his army goes, but why didn't Pharaoh? Any thoughts about that? Anybody know why Pharaoh didn't go? I mean, it might have been a sovereignty thing, too. Maybe, I see, I was kind of thinking that, too. Uh, Pharaoh considered himself divine, you know, as a, as a god, so maybe he was limited to the, the borders of wherever the... Uh, the borders of the country would be. So I don't know the answer to that. If somebody would uh, mind looking that up, that'd be excellent. All right. But, but one of the things that you get from this in terms of this large entourage is that it would have also discouraged anybody from attacking the caravan. Because remember, they're going from Egypt in the south all the way up north to Canaan. That's quite a journey, right? And because, and we're going to see this in the story, that Canaan was not, it was like a third world country. It wasn't developed. There wasn't, you know, roads and things like that. That was pretty, pretty open country because it was all just sort of tribal area, right? And so anybody traveling up that way could have been uh, vulnerable to uh, thieves and, and marauders and, and people like that, all right? And so they would have, you know, Caravan like that, they're carrying a lot of goods, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of uh, special things. And that would have been very attractive to anybody who may have wanted to rob them on the way. So, so you get that too. All right, verse 10. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, so they're all the way up, right? They lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. And that is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. Okay, so threshing floors. What is a threshing floor? What is that? It's like that, right? People, they would bring all the, all the crop in and then they would probably have some, it's like a mill, you know, they would, they would, some of the grain they would throw up in the air and then the wind would blow the chaff away and then you have the seeds. But there would have been other mechanisms there for them to be able to grind the, the grain and maybe f- perhaps turn it into flour as well, okay? Now the advantage of going there was, was that the threshing floors were fortified. So they had forts built around those threshing floors because if you didn't, then you were subject to marauders from other tribes or from other areas come in and they wait for the harvest. See, they wait for the harvest to be done and then they come in and steal everything. So they were these opportunistic sort of, uh, sort of things. So they would build these fortifications around. So what the caravan did leaving from Egypt well, as they said, there aren't any other forts that we can go to where we can rest and, and be safe, so we'll go to the threshing floor at Atad. Okay, with me so far? Good, all right. 
Let's see, I'm going to find an encouragement for you. So you all are listening well, so that's good. All right. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephraim the Hittite. We remember way back in our studies that, that story. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. Now the story thickens. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. <laughs> okay, what is wrong with this story, this part of the story? Now we're going to do a criticism of them, okay? <laughs> we're not going to praise their effort, right? All right, what's, what, what's missing in this part with verse 15 down to uh, the end of that that part of 17. What's wrong with this? What? They lied. they lied. How did they lie? Like saying our father said this when he didn't. That's right. So this habit of deception, which started way back in the life of their great-grandfather, has now moved its way all the way through, and they're still living that, presenting something that they say happened that it didn't really happen, right? Okay. Why would they do that? Right. CYA. A little bit, a little bit, okay. Anybody else? Self-preservation, absolutely. But but why is it that they would even think that? Yeah. Still not want to acknowledge their part in what they did. Notice that. Yeah. They're not, they still are not repentant. They're, they're not even owning that, the, other than this, well, the sins we did. Because the other thing they're doing is they're not going to the one whom they harmed. They're sending word to the one. Now, you could say, well, he was, you know, the big shot guy. He was Joseph. But they've, they, all along here, they've been having dinner with him. They've been having this great uh, reunion, this reconciliation. And the sense of it that you get here is they really didn't believe that his forgiveness of them was unconditional and that it was real. They still thought that the only reason why Joseph forgave them was because their father was alive and it, it was out of his good graces or his mercy maybe that they thought, okay, that's why Joseph's doing it. And so it does lend itself to this question, and that is, is what happens to us or in us when we, when we don't trust that someone has truly forgiven us? Because you think in terms of when, when you really believe that someone is true to that word, that they have forgiven you for some heinous thing they did or you did, okay? But if you don't believe it's real, then how does that impact you? It would seem that what happens is you're kind of living in a little bit of fear, aren't you? This isn't real. It's not going to last. And I got to make sure I, you know, CYA, I got to make sure I cover myself just in case. Because if it's not real, I got to be prepared for it, right? And, and the sad thing is, is that then the fear of whatever might still happen consumes you. And that's the sense we get here, is they were still, after all this that had happened, they're still consumed with the possibility that that forgiveness didn't really count. It wasn't really real. I'll get to the question in just a second. Is Sometimes we do that with God because we all can think of dumb stuff we've done or we all can think of betrayals that we have committed or sins that we say, oh my gosh, I am not in a million years going to let anybody know what that one is. God knows, of course, but we're not about to let anybody else know. And we, we doubt God's mercy. We doubt God's forgiveness. And we kind of are always then waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? 
yeah, he said he forgave me, but I don't know. Living in the fear, living in the tiptoeing around God, right? So same thing can happen. Yeah, Peggy. Well, too, I think the severity of the situation can be a, a contributor to it, but also in looking at them, they're thinking that if I, you know, somebody did that to me, yeah, I could never forgive that. Why? That's something that's too hard to forgive. So then, therefore, they're not going to trust that they're being forgiven because it's just such a terrible thing mm -hmm. that they can't believe any they could never forgive such a thing. Yeah, so it, it works against them. It can. Yeah. Sometimes you wonder if the difficulty is is that we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. And so then when we have a hard time forgiving ourselves, we have a hard time accepting the forgiveness of other people because we think, well, that, that can't be right. That can't be true, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. There's a difference between forgiving and forgetting. And I think um, when, you for, when you forgive someone, you still, you still remember right. what's happened. Right. And they do too. Mm -hmm. And just like, I think God probably forgets it, I hope. He says, I will remember it no more. Yes. <laughs> but you never, because of the shame involved yeah. in what you've done, you never forget what you've done to others as right. well. Nor do you forget what they've done to you. But you can forget. Is there value in that, by the way? Yes. What's the value in not forgetting? It's self-protecting. Mm -hmm. If, if you're the one that's been hurt, and then it's it's also self-protecting if you hurt someone else. Yeah, it can help you one. not put yourself in that position again, okay? Now, taken to the extreme, which most things, even really good things, if you take them to the extreme, they become harmful. So what's the harmful side of not of not forgetting? Is that you're consumed by it. You live, you live in fear of it constantly. So there's that kind of sweet spot, which is a little hard to define, right, in terms of that. So, so the idea, yeah, it's impossible to forget. I mean, unless you, like, have brain injury or something, then you can. But I'm not recommending that. I'm just saying that, you know, <laughs> that you, it, it's really impo almost impossible to forget. But the idea of it is, is that when I remember it, we, we forget that the stuff you remember, then you're, gonna, you're reliving it. Because your body doesn't know the difference between something that happened 20 years ago or something that happened 20 minutes ago. It doesn't know the difference. It doesn't work that way. So whatever you choose to remember and then hang on to and then replay in your head, you're going through the same stress of it. It's like a little bit of a PTSD idea. It's the same, same thing. So, so the, the question is, what am I going to choose to remember? And then how long am I going to replay it in my head? And what forgiveness does is it puts a salve on something. It doesn't eliminate what happened. It's not amnesia. That's not what forgiveness is. What forgiveness does is puts a salve on the pain of it. So when you remember something you did or something someone else did to you, if you say, and I forgave him, and I forgave her, and I forgave myself as God has forgiven me. See, what that does is that gives a good ending to that memory. Otherwise, it's nothing but a bad ending to that memory, and that's what affects us in a pretty powerful way. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah. I know we've talked about that at different times, but it's it's kind of good to revisit some of those things. Okay? Yeah. Yes? So, <coughs> what those mothers did wouldn't have been a secret. So does the community, the tribe they're in, do they remind them too? Do you remember when you did this? I mean, it shouldn't have been a secret. No, it was not a secret by this time, you know. And I think that you wonder how much did Jacob really know, you know, even because when they came back, you know, they didn't come back with Benjamin and that whole Joseph said, well, you better tell dad everything to happen, right? And so then they had to say everything, but you don't know how much they said and you don't know how much he knew, right? But sometimes the community that we're in, they'll remind us of stupid stuff we've done. <laughs> You know, just when you think that you're ready to forget and move on, then somebody from your past comes along and says, hey, yeah, you remember when you did this? Thank you. Okay. So Joseph weeps. What does that indicate to you? He realized that they really hadn't changed. Through, through everything, 
his forgiving them, the whole thing back in Egypt, we're now in Goshen, the whole blessing that God has done, they never changed. And he realizes that now. And sometimes I think that when we forgive other people, we think that the forgiving we do will change them. Like finally they're going to get it. They're going to turn that corner. We have forgiven. We've had reconciliation. We've had this great moment. We're singing Kumbaya together. We're all holding arms. It's a wonderful moment. And that's the way it'll be forever. And guess what? It's only that way for 24 hours. And sometimes that discourages us, doesn't it, from forgiving. But the reality is, we're not called to forgive so that we can change other people, right? If that's why you're forgiving, then you're turning forgiveness into a manipulation, into an effort to control somebody else. That's not why we forgive. We hope that's the case, but we, that's not why we do it. Why do you forgive? Hmm? Why do you forgive? What? Because God and Christ forgave you. That's why you forgive. Now, is it nice if somebody else changes after you've had this reconciliation moment with them? Yeah, of course. But some people don't. Well, then I am not ever forgiving ever again, right? And that's where a lot of us go. And that's a misuse or a misdirection uh, of what forgiveness is really intended to do. Yeah. Can there be love without forgiveness? Can there be love without forgiveness? Wow. So what's your answer? I don't think so. I don't think so. There are some people that teach in terms of reconciliation and kinds of things. They say, and I just totally disagree, and I do it out loud, um, that you should not be too quick to forgive. I totally disagree with that. I think we have to be quick to forgive. Slow to trust, and maybe never trust, because it's two different things, but quick to forgive. Because, why am I forgiving? Because God in Christ forgave me. Does, does God delay forgiving me until I have learned my lesson or until I promise I'll never do it again and then can demonstrate I would never do it again? Is that, does God delay forgiveness that way? No. If God doesn't do it with me that way, why, how in the world could I think to myself that I could do that with you or with myself? So see, forgiveness is a healing balm that heals me even if it doesn't change you. But it's not about changing you, right? But trust, that's a whole different ballgame. You got to earn, you have to earn my trust. And if you have broken my trust, it's going to take a long time for that trust to come back. And that's going to be totally measurable, totally conditional. Yeah, Don. Doesn't also forgiving um, also free you? Not necessarily the person that you're forgiving, but it, it frees you. you uh, yeah, in what way have you found it does? Well, you're not holding a grudge able to move on and maybe deal with that person in a kinder way than you would have if you're still not forgiving them. That's right. In other words, it kind of frees you to be who you're supposed to be That's and right. not living in the past. That's right. So um, if you think of um, the idea of forgiveness as not holding something against someone anymore. Okay. So let's see. Um, let's use this. This is a good use of the Bible here. Okay. So let's pretend that this heavy thing is the thing that I'm holding against someone, okay? How much effort will it take for me to hold this against Brian? Here, I'm holding this against you, Brian. <laughs> See what I'm doing? What am I doing? I'm taking this, the heaviness of the burden of this thing that Brian did to me that you don't even remember doing, but you did it, all right? <laughs> I'm holding it against him. Now, who, who is expending effort here? I am, because it's taking my energy. It's not doing your shoulder any good, I know. Is that the one you got operated on, by the way? Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> Let me do it this way. Sorry. Making it worse. But you're, but you're a good sport. Okay, all right, so I'm holding against him. Okay, now what am I require, what is this requiring me to do in order to continue to hold this against him? I have to, I have to spend my energy, and I have to stand right here next to him, Right? And wherever he goes, what do I have to do? I got to go with him. So I'm thank you for sitting. All right. Do you get the point? So then what forgiveness means is I'm lifting the burden. I'm not going to hold this against him anymore. Right. And so then what am I doing with my own energy is I'm freeing my own energy up. Right. To go about my life. 
Now, have you now changed as a result of my lifting that burden from you? Probably not, because you're the kind of guy you are, right? So, but see, the point is, is that now if, if what you had done to me and then I reacted to you, which makes me also part of the deal, right? If our trust in each other got hit, took a hit, then we have to figure out how to restore trust in each other. But that forgiveness is what sets the tone for that. It's really hard to trust somebody if you haven't forgiven them. I, I can't say impossible. I just, it's pretty hard because I'm going to continue to hold that against you. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, so it's just a, it's a way to think about it in terms of that and that power of forgiveness is so critical in relationships. And you think about that today, forgiveness is hardly mentioned. You hardly ever hear it on, on the news or social media or anything except in our circles um, because forgiveness is seen as being weak. Well, if it is, that's the kind of weakness I'm going to promote. It's not weak. It takes an enormous amount of strength and courage to do it. But it's based on the power of God in us to do it. I cannot do it on my own. There's, there's some, some I can, but, but there's a, some heavy stuff that I cannot forgive on my own. I, it takes the power of God and me being reminded that God in Christ forgives me, so i got to forgive that person. Okay? Yeah. Uh, asking for forgiveness is a lot tougher than forgiving anybody. I think you're right about that. And in the case of these brothers, there's, there's two, two forms of asking for forgiveness in my mind. The one there, asking for forgiveness to sort of replicate Make me feel good about what I did, yeah. as opposed to being repentant for what I did. Correct. And these guys were not repentant. No, they weren't. We don't know how that impacted their relationship with God. We don't know, okay? Because they received blessings beyond this. You know, their tribes and their families and all that. They were part of the covenant. So God said, I'm, you know, still going to bless you. But what we don't really know is they themselves, how that change would have occurred. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 18. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. That key phrase, am I in the place of God? See, that's the thing we have to remind ourselves of. When we think to ourselves, there's no way I can forgive that person for what he or she did. There's no way. Then you're putting yourself in the place of God. And that's what he realized was, I can't do that. God is the merciful and gracious God, and he in Christ forgives me. How in the world can I withhold that forgiveness in my personal relationship with that person? I can't. I can't. Okay? Trust is a different thing. But forgiveness is its own standalone thing. Okay? So what's kind of neat here is that he told them twice, don't be afraid. The reason is, is that when you live in the uncertainty of forgiveness, then fear is what dominates your life. And so he's saying... Okay, don't be afraid. But what I like is this, this, this last part. He spoke kindly to them. It's almost impossible to speak kindly to somebody unless you really actually have forgiven them. That there's something about taking the burden off that changes your countenance, it changes your, your capacity to not just be kind and do kind things, but actually to speak in a way that it is received as kindness. Okay? And so kindness, three kindnesses, two kindnesses, and number one, be kind when you do it. Okay, that would be the way I would say it. So Joseph stayed in Egypt along with his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When did that happen? 300 years 350 years later. <laughs> okay. 
So that was long enough time for all these guys to be dead, right? So that's a key little thing you want to keep in the back of your mind. Okay. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, they placed him in a coffin in Egypt. So that was the placeholder was in Egypt, but the final resting place was going to be in the land of Canaan. Okay, so let's talk about what we have learned in, in Genesis in all the 65 weeks that we have wrestled. Actually, it's been longer because there have been certain vacation times and, and holidays and things like that. So gosh, it's been almost two years. All right. So what have we learned? So I just wrote down some things in terms of the grouping of the chapters of Genesis as a way to think about this. Okay, so from Genesis 1 and 2, the main point was God is the creator and mankind is the created. I forgot to mention created in whose image? God's image, created in God's image. So, so when we're created in God's image, that's different than if we say I'm created in my own image, right? That would be the difference. So what's the ramification of that? What's the implication of Genesis 1 and 2 for us today? What's the significance of that today? That God is the creator, I am the created, and I'm created in his image. And there could be different different ones. It's not there's not just one thing. Yeah. <laughs> that would mean <clears throat> sorry, that would mean everybody, no matter who you are, or how much you just or you know, just like them or not like them or agree with them or not agree with them. Every single human being is made in the image of God. Yeah. They should be respected as they're you know, they're made in his image. And so one of the things I was thinking about is is that when I'm living in this that ultimate joy and security in life is found in that, okay? If I thwart it, if I think, well, um, I get to decide the image of my life, not God, then what happens to my ultimate sense of joy and security is now it gets um, impacted, okay? Genesis 3, the devil's strategy was to cause us to doubt God's word and the promises by appealing to our intellect, so remember, that was the very first thing that the devil did. Did God really say? God, you know, devil saying, now let's think this through. Did God really say? Okay? So that's appealing to the intellectual side of us uh, as opposed to the faith side. All right? So what would be the implication of that? Does the devil still do that today, do you think? There it is. Yeah. I think we see that more today maybe than even in the past where certain flavors of churches they take um, things that are said in the Bible and they twist it to their own needs. Of course. Yeah, if you say, yeah, if you say that the Bible contains God's word as opposed to is God's word, that sets that up immediately. Because now we get to use our intellect to determine what is God's word and what is not. So when you hear, for example, someone... Uh, and very often it's somebody very learned, um, has studied this for quite some time, from that point of view that it's not God's word, is to, to try to separate the authority of Jesus versus the authority of St. Paul. So the idea of, well, Jesus never talked about that, so therefore we can do it, even though St. Paul talked about it, you know, ad nauseum. But because we don't accept the authority of St. Paul, he was just a man, we accept the authority of Jesus who was divine. So that again is a is is based on the premise that if it if Jesus said it and in your Bible it's printed in red, then that then that's God's word. But everything else is not God's word, it's man's opinion. Okay? And there are churches now today that that promote that idea. They say, Oh, we believe in Jesus, we believe in Jesus. And I'm glad you do, but they separate the word. They don't separate the whole, they don't say it, the whole thing is God's word. They'll just say part of it is. And if you believe that all of it is God's word, you are not very smart. Yeah. I just heard this morning on the news that they're considering using artificial intelligence to rewrite the Bible and make it the correct Bible. Oh, good. You know, I was worried about all these years I've been reading the bad Bible. Yeah. But you can see where that's going to go, okay? And because 
because I believe that AI is a form of the Tower of Babel, that the intent here is to become God. And so we'll see what happens. We'll see what, what God does with that. Now, AI, there's a lot of good that can come out of AI. But you can see now where, okay, now we finally get to correct all the errors. And it'll be interesting to see what that ends up looking like. Yeah, and kind of terrifying. Yeah, Eddie. Well, some people are already complaining that the Bible contains too much sex and violence. They're right. If you've ever read the Bible, it is full of sex. And look what we talk, talk about in Genesis. Yes, they're totally correct about that. So we're going to ban the Bible. You know, I read the same thing. They're going to ban the Bible because of all that, you know, terrible stuff that people are doing. Yes. The other thing is that uh, it was in today's news that in Germany they already had a service, a church service. Oh, did you see that? Yes, the AI avatar was preaching, and apparently he did a good job. Yeah, apparently. I could become, you know, irrelevant. Yes. Yes, that would be an interest. Yeah, the avatar of Pastor Adi. Wouldn't that be kind of interesting with that? Really? Yeah, but well, I mean, we kind of laugh about it, but I think it's a little terrifying, actually, because of the number of people that are looking for something of substance to, to hang on to, right? But looking in all the wrong places. Just like in Genesis 1, Adam and Eve felt like, man, we're getting ripped off because we can't go eat of that tree. Well, let's just go eat of that tree, and then we won't be missing out, right? We're not going to trust that God knows what he's doing when he said, you can have everything else, but you can't have that. We're not going to trust that because we want everything, and AI promises everything. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yes. See, that gets at what I think this number two is really all about. It's number two. About, it's not about causing people to doubt God's word. It's about causing people to disobey God's word. Yeah. That's what it's trying to do. Oh, sure. Because that's not all he said. He also said... You know, well, God wasn't telling the truth when he said, if you eat of it, you're, he said, you're going to be like God. Oh, who could turn that away? I mean, the chance to be like God. Imagine, Dennis, what you would do with that power. That would be amazing. Yeah. I just like the, the important phrase that I think is the first, in the beginning of God. And we keep forgetting that, and then we put a different definition on who God is. That's right. And we got a little small God instead of the one that created the universe. That's right. Yeah, the one that can do more than you can imagine. See, why would we why would we want to trust and believe in a God that would be built in our image? Because imagination for a human being is so limited. And yet that is the perpetual struggle, isn't it? Is who's going to be God, you or God? Well, then Genesis 4 to 11 tells then the different stories of what happened as a result of giving in to sin. Mankind choosing to reject God's lordship suffered the punishment due while those who worshiped God were saved. So example was the flood as the example. But then later on, you know, we read of members Sodom and Gomorrah, those different stories too, or those different accounts, not just stories, but that, that these are things that when people rejected God, and it wasn't just that kind of, you know, sometimes you, even as a Christian, you're going, did this like really happen? You know, you have like these little doubt moments. You can't believe it, that kind of thing. That's not what this is. This is talking about uh, like even in the case of Pharaoh later in, uh, in Egypt, claiming divineship, claiming to be God as opposed to worshiping God, that kind of thing. And then Genesis uh, 12 to 50. God chose Abraham and his descendants to carry the covenant of God's promises to bring a savior into the world. God is faithful to his promises in spite of, and these are all the things we've learned in Genesis, right? Dysfunctional families, corrupt governments, decadent societies, and immoral religious practices in the pagan cultures. Yes, they were right when they said the Bible is filled with sex and violence. There it is right there. And you don't even have to go that far into the Bible. We have the book of Genesis to prove it, correct? So what's the implication of that? God is faithful in spite of what? All the human stuff we do. And why is that good news? Because we know that we are in Genesis. That's why. We are in Genesis. It isn't just like, oh, 2,000 years ago. That We are that. But God's promises and his faithfulness goes all the way through that. And that's why 
heaven is a sweet thing to look forward to, right? So pretty good stuff. So I, I drew a little house here for those of you that didn't know what this was. This is a house. And so the idea is, is that if you take those four lessons from Genesis and build your house on it, that's a pretty good house. So the foundation is Genesis 1 and 2, right? And then you can pick whichever one, like if you want the walls to be Genesis uh, 3 and 4 to 11 and 12 to 50, if you want to do that, you can think of it that way, okay? So has this been fun or what? Yes, we are happy that we had a good time with it, and we are more happy we are done with it. So, <laughs> all right, so we're going to, uh, next week we'll study, we'll start a little study of the Holy Spirit. And then uh, someone suggested to me um, that what we could do after that, which I kind of like the idea of it, is to, uh, to do a little series on how to respond to. So you think about all the social issues of the day, and, and many of us have people we know who are caught up in, in uh, many of the things that we would say are sort of biblically questionable. And, and so then, well, what do you do with that? How do you do that? Maybe we can even get Paige to come. Yeah. yeah. She's, just a, she's just a bright, fresh light. And so if we could have her maybe come too, because, because some of it is, is that how we as baby boomers, for the most part, look at things and how we talk about things sometimes gets in the way of our ability to connect with people that are in younger generations. And uh, uh, so I think that that would be a good thing for us to say, well, okay, how, how do we talk about it? How do we respond? So I thought that was pretty, you like that idea? That's a pretty good idea too, yeah. And then uh, after that, I don't know what we're going to do after that. So anyway, yeah, I like to sort of leave the uh, future open. All right, well, let's close the prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the time that we have spent in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Oh my heavens, Lord. It's like all of life is wrapped up into thinking about all the different things that happened then and then how your grace and mercy and at the same time judgment, how all of that wove itself through the accounts from Genesis 1 all the way to Genesis 50. The great comfort for us, Lord, is that you are true to your promises that no matter the ways that human beings can totally mess up your plan, you, you're undeterred. You will see it through. And the thing that you saw through for us is that you brought Jesus into the world and into our lives. Help us never forget that, Lord. you got a plan. You know what you're doing. Yes, we look at it and think, oh, Lord, you don't know what you're doing. But, Lord, you know what you're doing. And we are so thankful and we are so comforted by that. So be with, uh, be with us in that way, uh, dear Lord. Watch over us this day, this Father's Day. Keep us mindful of all of the, the men that we've had in our lives, uh, many of us going way back to the blessing that they have been to us and the way that we can in turn be a blessing to those that uh, we are with. So watch over us this week, dear Lord, until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.